I didn't have sort of a reference that I was trying to recreate, you know, some kind of memory because I didn't have that. I mean, I certainly had tried donuts growing up, but it wasn't like, oh, I want to try replicate this part from my childhood. Instead, I sort of took an approach as an, as an immigrant. It was very funny, like this French guy, this Mexican girl, trying to do something quintessentially American. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel, here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. On today's episode, Anna is sitting down with chef and cookbook author Fanny Gerson. Fanny has written three books about Mexican sweets, but she's also the pastry chef behind La New Yorkina in New York and Dough Donuts. Also, a little over a year ago, she opened Fan Fan Donuts in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, which I think it's fair to say probably makes the best donuts in New York. She shared a few trade secrets and also told me about some of her favorite Mexican food in New York. Here's Anna talking to Fanny. So, Fanny, you opened Fan Fan Donuts about a year ago now. I think it was fall of 2020, right? That's right. (laughs) And this was after um, being a partner at Dough Donuts and more than 10 years ago opening La Noriokina. What made you feel like it was time for something new, like a new exciting project? So um, it had been a while that some of my former partners and I wanted to separate, you know, when I was at Doe. Um, we just weren't seeing eye to eye. Um, and it took a long time, but right before the pandemic hit New York, it was like in February, mid-February, we were able to separate. But I had already started... Um, I, we already had a space, actually. My partner, Thierry, and I, who both started Dough Donuts, like, already had the project, already had, you know, a vision of what we wanted it to be, had a built-out a space for whenever it was ready, and then the pandemic hit. So we were, like everybody else, just wondering what and if <laughs> and how. Um, so we you know, pretty quickly we realized we weren't going to be able to keep both spaces because we kept the original dough space in um, in Bed-Stuy and we were going to do a wholesale bakery out of that, actually. We were going to, you know, rename it. It was going to be called Bernard's. We were going to have this whole different thing and uh, but then we couldn't keep both of those uh, spaces and so it had been something that I've been wanting to do for a while, just, uh, you know, in a different way with a different tone. In some ways, a donut shop is kind of the perfect thing to open during a pandemic because it's all takeout. You can get a box of donuts and share it on a friend's stoop or in the park or take it to someone who just seems like they need a donut. Yeah. And I I also think it's, you know, it always brings comfort and joy, right? Like a lot of food does that. But I think there's something, you know, before... I ever started doing donuts. I didn't grow up going to donut shops because I'm from Mexico and that wasn't like a big thing the way that it is here. Um, And the joy that when people come into the shop, it's something that I I never expected or I it was very surprising to me so there's something and it was very hard you know it was uh October things were still shut down and I can't tell you how many people just expressed 
you know, this is something really exciting to look forward to. And, you know, I love I love kids. And um, when we opened, anytime I would see a kid, I would ask a parent um, if they would let me, you know, bring him in the back to see how we make the donuts. Um, you know, and I always had to ask because especially with the pandemic and, and everything. So um, obviously everybody was and still is wearing masks and everything. But most parents were super excited. And I mean, there was this one particular uh, mother who just started bawling and she was just and then we both started crying. And wow. it was just about like just you don't know what this means. Uh, and I'm starting to get choked up just <laughs> remembering. So just to be able to to do something in that particular time was, was particularly meaningful to open at the time. And that's exactly the kind of experience that you don't really get if you're running a chain of donut shops or like a, a wider, a, a bigger company with multiple locations necessarily. I know like Doe, I remember going to Doe when it first opened in um, that original Bed-Stuy spot that's now Fan Fan. And it was such a sensation. There was like a, a line down the block to get in. And then it very quickly expanded and you could find dough donuts in coffee shops around New York. And there was a Manhattan location. Um, do, you, do you see yourself ever expanding that way with Fan Fan or... Is that not part of your goal with this? That it, you know, when we decided to kind of restart our journey in the donut world, I really wanted to go back to the roots, and you know, it's which is all about community, and so you know, a lot of times in the industry, you know, with friends and peers, you always feel kind of this pressure, like, okay, it's doing well, so so what's next? Like, when are you going to grow? When are you going to? So I I don't uh, want to do wholesale. You know, I, I never really liked it. I mean, it was a very substantial part of the business. So in terms of business, it, it was good. But I, I didn't like it because you're kind of detached from the people that are buying it. And then you have to do them really early. So we were we would sell at Whole Foods, for example, and they would have come to pick them up at 4 a.m., in order oh for them gosh. to be there before the shop opened. So if somebody goes in a lunch break at noon, that donut was made, you know, uh, around like 2 a.m. and you know for it to be cooled down to be packed and everything so it's not going to be fresh so it's not it's about the product it's about the people so I don't know how I want to grow but I know I want to take my time and I really want to you know do a lot in that space and really like I said uh, not to repeat myself but to really build community but also experiment and you know there's a lot of exciting things that I'm that I want to do creatively that I have sort of pent up that I couldn't do for for a lot of years one of the signature items at fan fan donuts is the fan fan which right. <laughs> is kind of a pastry of your creation, right? Tell us about what the fan fan is. So the fan fan is it's a donut. It's a long donut, but it's inspired by eclairs. So it's not necessarily a cross between like it's the same dough as the donut. But imagine, you know, uh, long johns, which um, they're kind of rectangular, big donuts that are filled I like the way that that you eat them you know uh, and and but I love sort of the approach of the eclair how it's a little 
it's very special. It's very intentional. Um, and so I kind of take that approach of how, you know, if I was to have an eclair shop, you know, but in donuts, you know, that it's smaller, that it's more. But at the same time, it's always this balance, right? I want it to feel special, but I want it to feel approachable. You know, to me, a donut shop should still feel comforting. You know, sometimes you go into like these beautiful chocolate shops or pastry shops and you feel like you almost have to be quiet when you go in, <laughs> you know, because they're so elegant and they're so precious. I don't want them to feel precious, you know, like they can't touch them because you still want to have fun with them. You want them to, you know, get all over your face and, and things like that. But at the same time, be like there's a lot of intention and and thought and heart that goes into everything. So it's not a cross between them, but it's more inspired by. I have to say, this will reveal maybe like what a messy eater I am, but <laughs> I love the fan van because it's way easier to bite into than a giant round filled donut. Yes, yes. And that's one of the appeals. And actually, you know, my, my friend Alex Reich was also, she's an amazing chef here in New York. Um, it was her son, I can't remember if it was her daughter or her son, I think it was her son, who said that that's why he loved Long John's, the way that you eat them. But to me, I'm like, those are really big. So that was the first aha moment. <laughs> I love that. I feel like, I mean, I've made donuts at home before, and yeasted donuts are really hard to get right because you're working with almost like a bread dough. Right. And so they can come out really dry or dense. But what, in your opinion, makes a really good yeasted donut? And like, what are some of the pitfalls that people can fall into? I think a really good donut, I think you're right, like it's tricky. And especially when you have a shop where you just do one thing, like think about when you have a bakery, you could have some sort of, you know, things that are great and things that are like, okay, maybe it's, you know, you have a, a big variety, right? When you have one thing, you have to do it very well. It's, it's um, and that's what we strive for. The consistency is difficult because we don't have a controlled environment. For example, we don't have a proofer, like an actual proofer or anything like that. Um, I think a good donut is not oily. Um, I mean, the, the recipe that we use is, is one that I developed myself. So without, you know, I didn't have sort of a reference that I was trying to recreate, you know, some kind of memory because I didn't have that. I mean, I certainly had tried donuts growing up, but it wasn't like, oh, I want to try to replicate this part from my childhood. Instead, I sort of took an approach as an as an immigrant, you know, um, be like, okay, what is it about donuts that I love? And if you were, and I was surprised, and this was my partner's idea, you know, he was, you know, so it was very funny, like this French guy, this Mexican girl trying to do something quintessentially American. <laughs> and we, Classic we, New York right, story, right? And we geeked out a lot about, you know, the texture and the flavor that we were trying to achieve. But it wasn't, like I said, something that we shared or that we were trying to do. So we just, to me, there's many great donuts. It's not like one has to be, but it should feel, it should have a bit of a bite. It should be amazing naked, you know, like without any glaze or topping. Um, so great on, can stand on their own. And uh, just have a bit of like sponginess, but not that you bite and that it feels like like air. I don't know how to explain it. Right. Um, do you know because, what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like crispy creams I love, but um, I think that there's something kind of like insubstantial about the texture sometimes. It's like... 
a little too spongy or airy or yeah that's i don't know that i think you you're exactly uh, you're describing exactly what i'm trying to describe (laughs) but i think that there's a lot of amazing donuts out there and it's just and 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 the dough should be seasoned you know um so we actually make um a mexican cinnamon tea as part of like, and, and we use that to make our dough. You don't taste the cinnamon. And, and I, I got that idea because at my other business at La Niorquina, that's what we do to make our churros. And I thought, well, you know, would that add anything or didn't? And we, I tested like side by side and it added something in the way that sort of when you do, you use salt in something savory, right? It just kind of heightens it. So you don't feel this, you, you shouldn't taste the salt the way that you shouldn't taste the cinnamon. It just kind of seasons it. And also, I don't know chemically what happens, but um, I think the natural oil that gets released from the cinnamon to the water does some kind of magic. Um, and because we've tried the recipe, like I, I tried many recipes, like side by side, exactly the same amount. And it's just a little bit different. And it's to me, it's also about the little nuances, right? Like that's what makes it um, great. And the to one more point, the fact that it's, you know, sort of a small, it's one shop for the moment. You can kind of, I like that the imperfections is what makes it perfect. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. I hope no one from the Krispy Kreme's test kitchen is listening to this because they're going <laughs> to steal your idea for the cinnamon tea. I don't know. It's too expensive, you know, so. <laughs> Are there any, so you grew up in Mexico City and you've written multiple cookbooks about Mexican sweets. Are there other Mexican influences in the donuts that you're making at Fan Fan? I think that the influence, the Mexican influence always is always present, you know, uh, even if it's sort of in the back of my mind or not even, without even sort of noticing, like it's part of my DNA. So one of our most popular ones that we have since we started is our guava and cheese. Um, And that was inspired by this guava and cheese roll from a bakery in Mexico City called Rosetta. And I think a lot of just the fact that when you walk in, you have some donuts that have, that are very colorful. Naturally, I don't like, I don't use any colorings or anything, but even just that, like that's important to me. And I think that's part of, you know, growing up in a very colorful culture. Like I said, the fact that there's Mexican cinnamon in every single donut <laughs> is, uh, you know, in, in the dough itself. Um, and so I, I tend to gravitate a lot towards, um, you know, tropical flavors. I also did a champurrado um, donut as part of a an awesome chocolate donut festival that I did back in, I think it was like in April, April or May, I don't remember. But I did 18 flavors, all chocolate-based, using guitar chocolate, which is amazing. And it was, you know, I, I wanted to do something that would represent what we're going through, you know, being in the middle of a pandemic. I was super homesick, and as I'm sure most people were, or they were yearning to travel, whether it was back home or somewhere else. So I wanted to create uh, an experience where they could travel and bring some joy the way that you get when you travel. That was my my intention anyway. So And it was so beautiful because people would come in and they would get, oh, I'll have the, you know, the Japan, Brazil, um, Mexico, you know, and it was just so 
so beautiful just to hear that because that is something I definitely wanted to do uh, when I, you know, when I knew I was going to reopen a donut shop is to sort of uh, show how I'm inspired by other countries, other cultures, um, and again, sort of bring that immigrant point of view. And one of the flavors that I did there, the champurrado, is a blue corn and Mexican chocolate glaze. Very cool. <laughs> Living in New York, I feel like there's a kind of like a little bit of a rivalry between New York and L.A. And one of the common talking points I hear all the time is kind of this myth about New York that there's no good Mexican food here, <laughs> which, of course, is complete nonsense. <laughs> but what are people sort of overlooking about Mexican food in New York, in your opinion? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, a few years ago, maybe that statement was correct. And I do think it's easier to find better Mexican food, like easier. You don't have to kind of seek it out so much in, in L.A. Um, it's the proximity. It's the there's there, there's some amazing places here. There's a lot of sort of high end places that people know about, but there's also you can kind of see the, you know, like a movement. There's a couple of people that are making their own masa. Uh, one of them is actually two blocks away from Fan Fan Donuts, so I am, you know, the happiest neighbor for all things good. It's a tiny spot, and they make delicious, um, you know, kind of antojitos, Mexican snacks. I love and... that you mentioned this because I have actually gone to For All Things Good and gotten some tetelas to eat in line for donuts. At yeah, donuts. I think that, you know, it, it go goes hand in hand. And there's also uh, another place, uh, Sobre Masa. They're, they're in Williamsburg. They started in Williamsburg, but now they just opened um, their sort of factory in Bushwick. And anybody in New York, like, you have to go. My husband and I went there to have, they have tacos, like, in, in the evening. And it's, it's, I mean, we were so excited. We're like, we're going to be here every week. <laughs> I went there last weekend. There's, it's Isn't so it amazing? Good. Yeah. I love the the cauliflower tacos, actually. I eat meat, but the cauliflower was I didn't great. have that. That was the one that I didn't have. <laughs> well, next you know, time. Next time. Next time. There's always room. So I think that there's a lot of places. Um, here in Hell's Kitchen, there's a place um, called Tulcingo del Valle. And it's a deli and a restaurant. The the tacos aren't my favorite thing there, but all of sort of the homemade dishes. And I think there's a lot of places like that, that I think people go and they're like, oh, well, the, the tacos are sort of the way they measure. But, you know, Mexican food is very regional and it's very broad. So I think you can't narrow it down to, to that. But any place with like good tortillas is a good, <laughs> is a good indication. So I think there's a lot of places that are really shifting things up. And now I can say there's good food in Good Mexican food in New York, but for a long time, I'm, you know, I, I will say that I probably agreed with that statement. <laughs> On that topic, you, I mean, Fan Fan Donuts was not your only big project of the last year. You also started El New Yorkino. Tell us about El New Yorkino. Right. So um, I have a company called La New Yorkina, and we make Mexican uh, ice pops, ice cream, and sweets. And, you know, when everything shut down, we had a store in the West Village. Um, and, you know, we had to lay everybody off, and we didn't know 
if we were going to have a business or not, if we were going to have a summer, like everybody. Like, there was just only unknowns. <laughs> That's the only thing we knew, that we knew nothing at all. So we stopped working for like 10 days, and my husband and I were trying to figure out. We worked together at La Nierquina. He runs all the operations. And, you know, we said, well, we, we have to... We have to figure something out because we don't have that's that's what we had I had separated from from Doe, so I didn't have that. We had an opened fan fan. And so we needed to figure out what we were gonna do. So at first, you know, we felt well, we need to find a way to help, to contribute. So we started making tamales and started, you know, asking for donations from our purveyors to see, you know, just, just to make and you know, it's kind of like you need to keep busy while you figure it out. And uh, and then we started, you know, uh, some people started to find out that we were doing that and they gave us donations to to give that. And then we partnered up with a few organizations like Feed the Frontlines. And so for several months, that was actually what kept the lights on. You know, we were able to you know, rehire some of our staff and provide meals for not just hospital workers, but uh, communities in need. But then we had the staff and then we were still thinking, okay, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be doing this. I mean, we hope this stops because it means everything's going to be okay, but it didn't seem like that was going to be the case. So then we had to think, well, outside the box, what can we do? And we said, we're not a restaurant. We're not, you know, I said, well, why don't we do just home-style Mexican meals for people that we deliver and with just reheating instructions because we felt people were stuck at home and they wanted home-cooked meals, but either they didn't have the time or they were they were tired or it was difficult, and so they order a lot of takeout. Um, but you get tired of eating takeout, so we're like, okay, well, this is maybe this is something we can provide that nobody is providing, and so what do we call it? Okay, well... The, everybody knows La Neyorquina, so we used our, you know, the people that already, you know, buy from us or know us and just started doing a weekly <laughs> newsletter um, to, to you know, show, like, the different meals. And we would just do it, and and that's how El Neyorquino was born. And then this year we stopped uh, once we knew we could produce ice cream again, Um and so we're like, okay, and we didn't think we were going to bring it back because it was sort of like a temporary thing, but then enough people started asking about it. And so we said, okay, so I guess we're going to bring it back. But also because of Department of Ag regulations, we couldn't do them at the same time. We had to stop ice cream production in order for us to, to do that. So, And then in the middle of that, we unfortunately had to close um, the shop in the West Village. And so that was really heartbreaking. The, the landlords were not open to... To negotiating and we just you know without that and and even before that to be frank it was every winter we were suffering every winter we were just like sweating how are we gonna make payroll like what are we gonna do because the rents are so high and so now I always say kind of last year was about just survival like let's keep the lights on not just the business but you know all the people that work with us give them uh, a purpose, an intention, and um, and then this year was like, okay, let's let's see what happens because we don't know. I mean, we had, but we had a great summer, luckily, and uh, and now you know, I think that what the next step for us is, we want to open a shop that kind of brings both savory and sweet. Um, so we're starting, trying to figure out what that looks like, and we have a tentative name. 
because uh, I'm like, el New Yorkino and la New Yorkina is like a handful to say. <laughs> but um, but it, but it was the, the response was amazing. That's great. So you're the author of three books about Mexican sweets. Do you have another book in you? Do you have a dream cookbook that you haven't written yet? Yes, I have several. <laughs> the, those 10 days that I stopped, um, you know, working, I actually did wrote two cookbook proposals that I had been, you know, wanting to write. And we, you know, my agent tried to pitch them together, you know, which was the first time we did that. It was also not the best time to really pitch. Um, so we kind of stopped. We, it, One of them is a donut book. Um, but we found out that actually there's a lot of hesitation from publishers, um, even though I think the, the public really wants it. But they said that a lot of people would be kind of afraid of frying. But that's kind of one of the reasons why I want to do it. So, you know, to kind of guide them through that and to lose that that fear. Um, and the other one is about the breads of Mexico. Um, and that's like a big project that would take, you know, a number of years. So I think we're going to try to, you know, maybe separate those two um, and try to pitch them again. But I also have a new idea that I that that I need to sit down and write, but it's it's all in my head and it's uh, about the breakfasts of Mexico. I love that. Yeah. I would read that. <laughs> and that was inspired by a lot of the, th- the stuff that we did at, at El New Yorkino and this idea. I've been wanting to have a, like an all breakfast place in, um, in New York as a business. So I feel, you know, if we open this place, it won't be exactly that. But I think there's a lot of that. And uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, Fanny, thank you so much for joining me on the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. It's, it's an honor. Love everything you guys do. So thank you so much for having me. Anna, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year face-to-face. We haven't seen each other in a long time. 2022. I mean, it is going to be a year that should be full of cooking, full of testing ourselves for viruses, full of podcasting. New Year, new you. It's time in the calendar that we are kind of required to think about what we eat and drink. It's also a time when the food media starts to create these lists, these recipe roundups of food, and also the diets that we all should follow to become what, like better eaters, better citizens. What is what are these what are these diets all about? There is such a huge diet industry, and the crazy thing is, it's so concentrated in this time of the year. Like we're just sort of bombarded by advertising, marketing about all of these products that we can buy that are supposed to make us healthier. Healthier. Subscriptions, um, gym memberships, meal plans, the list goes on. Applications, you know, it's like you you have an app that will help you shed some pounds. Yeah, it's all over the place. We're just kind of bombarded with it. And really, I think part of these apps and part of this whole process is like restricting things from your diet, right? You're restricting gluten. You're taking January off from drinking, right? That's the dry big thing. January. Yeah, there's a lot of austerity at this time of the year. Last year, you actually interviewed a journalist who went through a whole suite of these sort of like fad diets. And what was 
the takeaway? So it was a great interview. I interviewed Barry Estabrook. He's a journalist and now kind of more of a memoir writer. Uh, Gonzo journalist, we'll call him. Like it's blending journalism and memoir. Gonzo journal or or what do you call it? Interactive journalism. What do you want to call that? Uh, stunt journalism? Stunt. That's the word. I knew there was a word. It's like stunt journalism. And so what he did was he um, wrote this book called Just Eat, and it's a pretty smart concept. He tried all of these fad diets, the Whole30, South Beach, the Master Cleanse, and he came down to this conclusion. And can you guess what that one conclusion was? I can guess based on the title of the book, <laughs> which is the book is called Just Eat. Oh, yeah, just eat. He's he's basically like, okay, so I've got these diets here, but, you know, they're not that great. I'm just going to eat. So, so like, the takeaway was, like, kind of less important to honestly. It was more him, like, living through the whole 30 and living through the cleanse. The cleanse sounded like the worst. I don't know, to me, like, cleansing. It sounds painful. One of the most interesting points I thought he made just from, like, the parts that I read of the book was he really makes the point that, what we eat is a deeply personal choice and you really it's really hard to follow a diet it's actually kind of easier to lead a diet and to sort of like create the plan that works for you oh yeah absolutely i think you definitely need to blend um a a, a number of the of the diets that are out there and and i think it's it's definitely it's not prescriptive right eating shouldn't be like a prescriptive act right like you shouldn't like say you this is the only way to eat right right and like all of these lists of really strict rules it's kind of setting you up for failure have you ever dabbled in the world of fad diets you know what? I've I've done some some fad dieting, I, or I've done some. I've I've altered my diet to to conform with what society has told me I needed to do. Well, let me just start by saying I was a vegetarian for three years. That's pretty impressive. What were you <laughs> mostly eating? So in those I was days? in college or high school in college. I was a vegetarian. I ate a lot of Amy's. Like I ate the sweet of Amy's products. So I had I definitely had the mac and cheese, a few of the burritos. Like it was definitely I was an Amy stan. I ate a lot of vegan chicken salad. Um and I also I ate um a lot of the the the, the Morning Star Farms products, you know, like those those green boxes. Those are good. I actually sometimes buy those just to have like easy lunches in the freezer. Yeah, I have some chick- fake chicken patties at home that I'm going to cook this week. Oh, um, yeah. Those are great. You know what? Dousing those in some Frank's Red Hot oh. and doing sort of like a buffalo chicken style sandwich, pretty good. I agree. Um, I've also tried keto as kind of a joke. <laughs> like, I was like, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat all this like crazy rich food and that's going to be good. The problem with keto is like you have to only eat the rich food and like your metabolism increases like the Atkins diet. It's a lot of cheese, right? <laughs> and butter. Okay. <laughs> problem with that is like you can't eat any carbs. And I can't live a life without carbs personally, Anna. This sort of brings up to me, I was going to mention that the other funny thing always to me about fad diets is how many we've cycled through in our lifetimes, like um, just these momentary fads that we're, we're sort of like preached to about this one healthy thing we need to start doing. And it reminds me that a few years ago, Rebecca Flint Marks wrote a story for Taste's 90s issue about the snack wells fad. Another green box. Another green box, yeah. yeah. And it was just sort of like this moment in the 90s when 
fat was like really villainized and everything else was totally okay. I mean, we were basically told you can eat as much sugar and as many carbs as you want. You can eat unlimited baked potatoes. Oh, I love her. Susan Powder. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember her? Like 45 baked potatoes in like a wheelbarrow? Yeah. Yeah. I loved her. Just as long as you're not eating fat. And so Snackwell's kind of just like had this explosive moment. And then it seemed like just like that, it disappeared. It disappeared because people realized that Snackwell's Angel Food Cake snacks taste like shit. They don't taste They're good. awful. They're awful. <laughs> It's true. Rebecca also pointed out in that article, which we'll link to um, in the episode notes, uh, that Halo Top <laughs> kind of became like the snack wells of our, our you know, decade, our, our generation. Oh, Halo Top. I, I remember Garrett Schneider wrote a piece for Taste. I, I signed it to him. And it was to investigate Halo Top as a phenomenon and get in touch with the the marketing team. And he did a great job. And, and I, highlight, I highly recommend reading that. But Halo Top was, I think it was the summer of 2018. It was like the summer of Halo Top. Yeah, it had such a moment like Snackwells, I think because we were sort of told, like, you can eat unlimited Halo Top. <laughs> As long as you don't eat anything else. <laughs> it was wild. Like, I think what happened was they put those numbers on the pint and said, you can eat this entire pint for, it was a 220 calories for peanut butter cup, quote unquote, ice cream. Wild, wild times. Like, I definitely did that 55 times that summer. <laughs> I had 55 pints of, of Halo Top that summer. I have to be honest. I haven't seen a carton of Halo Top in the store in like two years. It came <laughs> and went. It did. I think there was copycats involved. I think a lot of the brands like got you know got hip and like decided they wanted to do their own version of Halo Top. But I also think people realized that, like with Snackwells, um, Halo Top tastes like shit. <laughs> you said it, not me. I mean, we were eating it because we felt like we were getting a version of ice cream that was just enough, just good enough, right? Yeah. Eh. Speaking for myself, I maybe would rather prefer to have real ice cream every once in a while not a whole pint yeah I think so I, I feel like we definitely are um it, of, a, of a time where the real ice cream is going to swing back into fad I think that like locale ice cream was again the 2018-2019 pandemic has proven to us that we should live our lives and eat full fat ice cream right Anna well said Anyways, thanks for listening, and we'll link to some of the reading about Snackwell's Halo Top and Barry Estabrook in our episode notes. Great talking, Anna. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com, and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.